0: Jesus Christ use apologetics and what exactly is apologetics anyway today Pat Zuckerman answers that question welcome to evidence and answers with Dr. Pat Zuckerman and it's based on Pat's new book The Apologetics of Jesus co-authored by Dr. Norman Geisler on today's show you'll gain some valuable insight on Jesus methodology when he presented and defended his claims In fact, I bet you'll see some things you may have never noticed. Jesus used philosophy, logic, reason, history, and many other methods when he communicated. By the way, I suggest you get a copy of The Apologetics of Jesus at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. You'll help support Evidence and Answers as we take the greatest message of all time to the nations. That's evidenceandanswers.org. While you're at the website, browse the terrific resources we have available. You can download past shows, read Dr. Zuccarin's articles, and find information on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Well, Pat, over the last couple of shows, we've discussed several of the apologetic methods of Jesus. Apologetic, that means the defense of the faith or defending What you believe, knowing why you believe, what you believe. Jesus defended his claims, and we've been examining that. It's based on your new book with Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, and that's available from Baker Books. You can also get it at evidenceandanswers.org. There's never really been a book written like this on the apologetics of Jesus, even though so much of the church now is familiar with apologetics. This is definitely something we need to be aware of when we read the New Testament accounts of Jesus to look at how he did these things.
1: Right, apologetics was an essential component in the ministry of Jesus. You know, Jesus understood that we're created in the image of God. Therefore, we use our rational thinking capacity all the time in making decisions. We use reason and we look at the evidence in making just daily decisions in our life. Well, how much more the things about eternity and what we are going to believe and how we're going to live our lives? God does not want us to believe in things that are irrational or false. And Jesus did not want His people to make a blind leap of faith he provided the evidence to support his claims to indeed be the
0: divine son of god pat here's what's interesting when we look at jesus he taught in a jewish culture that held to a theistic worldview they already believed in god he didn't have to establish an argument for god's existence so he was teaching in a culture that already assumed the existence of god that's why we don't find jesus interacting with atheists or anything like that so one sense it shows that he was speaking to the culture in which he ministered
1: yes that is correct and it's interesting to think what kind of arguments would jesus have used in a non-theistic culture if he was if he was in a culture that did not believe in god what kind of arguments would he have used i think we can find evidence for the arguments he would have used when we look at the old testament when we look at the gospels that record his teachings but also when we look at the new testament because the New Testament reflects the inspired teaching of the apostles who were with Jesus, and so they reflect the mind of Christ. So when you look at the Old Testament, the Gospels, and the New Testament, I think you find good evidence for the kinds of arguments that Christ would have used. Now, what kind of arguments would he have used? I believe the three classical arguments. I think there's evidence that he would have used what we call the cosmological argument, or the argument from first cause. Whatever has a beginning, must have a cause the universe has a beginning therefore the universe must have a cause And whatever cause the universe is greater than the universe God is a great candidate how do we know Jesus would have used that well he's very familiar with the Old Testament Genesis 1 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth Jesus knew that the universe has a beginning creation has a beginning in fact he refers to it in his teaching in Matthew chapter 19 when the Pharisees ask him about divorce and remarriage he goes all the way back to creation he says in matthew chapter 19 verses 4 through 8 but it was not this way in the beginning so he points to the beginning of creation and in mark chapter 13 in that great olivet discourse when he talks about times of tribulation as never seen before since the beginning of creation so jesus often refers to the beginning of creation So that would have been a powerful argument for Jesus, that the universe has a beginning, he knew that, therefore the universe must have a cause. So I think Jesus would have used a cosmological argument there.
0: I think so, and I think we can see evidence of that also in Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and an apostle of Jesus, when he stood before the non-believers on Mars Hill, he appealed to creation. So that's further evidence Right. Acts 17. In Acts 17. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What else would Jesus have used? You think? Well,
1: I believe he would have used what we call the teleological argument or the argument from design. Every design has a designer. The universe shows design. Therefore there must be an intelligent designer. Where do we get that from? Well, throughout the Old Testament, it talks about God's creative intelligence behind his creation. You know, Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God night and day they pour forth his knowledge. And so, you know, the Psalms talk about God's hand in creation, that God was active in designing the created order. And also in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is addressing that whole issue about worry and anxiety, and he answers that by pointing to design in creation. He says, consider the lilies of the fields or the birds of the air. You know, he says, your father takes care of them. How much more? You. And so God is pointing to the created order there, the design that you find in creation when he's answering this question about worry and anxiety. So Jesus understands design in creation. And so he would have used this argument from design or the teleological argument. Then third, we have the classical moral argument that if there's a universal moral law, then behind it is a universal moral law giver. And throughout the Old Testament, for example, in the Old Testament law, Leviticus chapter 18, God condemns the immorality of foreign nations that they deserve to be judged. Although they did not have the law of God, though they did not have the Old Testament law, they were judged and held accountable because they had the moral law written upon their hearts. Paul makes mention of that in Romans chapter 2, the law code written upon their hearts. And also in Matthew chapter 7 verse 11, when Jesus is talking about prayer and, and answering prayer, he says, if, if your child comes and asks for bread, you're going to give him, you know, a scorpion. And then, he, you know, he tells that whole parable. And in verse 11, he says, well, if you, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more your heavenly father? So it says there.
0: Wow, well, he says even evil people recognize moral values. Right. Uh-huh. So
1: there, I think, is evidence that Jesus would have used the moral argument for the existence of God. And then. The fourth one we find is the argument from existential need. You know, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2, Solomon, who had experienced all the material pleasures this world has to offer, but had turned away from God at the end of his life after experiencing all the material pleasures that the world has to offer, opens the book of Ecclesiastes in verse 2 saying, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. In other words... Life without God, without the hope of eternal life, without an everlasting relationship in God, all is meaningless. And Jesus understood that. And so I believe the argument from existential need that without God, life is ultimately meaningless. If we're just a mere accident here in our Ultimate end is annihilation, not only for us as individuals, but mankind and the universe. If that's the ultimate end, what certainty do we have but death? Then well. what is the ultimate meaning of life? And Jesus, I believe, understood that in matthew chapter 4 verse 4 where in the temptation jesus said to Satan, man does not live by bread alone jesus was saying there's something else that is necessary for us to continue living and that's an understanding of eternity and a relationship with an eternal god so i believe those are about four arguments that jesus would have used to defend the existence of god in a non-theistic culture
0: pat that is so powerful i, I hadn't even thought about that i mean i I'm glad you and Dr. Geisler have written this book, The Apologetics of Jesus, because I always uh, considered that, you know, that, well, Jesus taught in a theistic context for people who already believed in God, and I just kind of stopped there. But this is great to consider what he would, in fact, argue based on um, what he held to and uh, his activity.
1: Yeah, it was very challenging when Dr. Geisler asked me to write on this, what kind of arguments would Jesus have used? And really, it stumped me for a while. I had to really think about it. Yeah. And then as it started coming together, I could see how it all started beginning to come into place. But it was a challenge.
0: Yeah, when you get asked a question like this, I guess you got to go back and, well, let me read all the Gospels again in light of this question and see what comes out, what emerges. That is just great. Your co-author, Dr. Geisler, has a, a talk that he does. Can the Atheist Live by Bread Alone? And he shows in that that even the great atheist of all time, still had a need for God, still acknowledged their need for God, wished that they weren't atheists and that life was really meaningless. You know, Sartre, Camus, Nietzsche, and all these great thinking atheists. And so uh, Jesus certainly recognized that. Where was that, Matthew 4?
1: Yes, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4.
0: The book is The Apologetics of Jesus, and it's available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. It's also available from Baker Books. Now, Pat, I want to throw some objections at you because from time to time, in fact, pretty often we hear objections to the use of apologetics. People say, well, they're Passages in the New Testament that appear to teach against the use of apologetics or appealing to reason and so forth. Some people argue that these passages teach against, uh, you know, the use of evidence and witnessing to non-believers or, or, or reason. What really is needed is, they say, just to share the gospel and the Bible and the Holy Spirit do the work. And the use of reason and evidence is ineffective in leading anybody to Christ. I want to throw a few of the passages that I hear people use there. But first of all, let me ask you this. Do you hear people ever use that objection?
1: Yes, those are some common objections. And some of the verses that we're going to go over are some of the verses that are quoted.
0: Let me look at a a few then. One is Matthew 12, beginning of verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so he says, I'm not going to do a sign for you. You know, you want a sign, you want uh, proofs. I'm not going to give you that, uh, what you're asking for. Is that what's going on here?
1: Yeah, that's how some people interpret the verse. Some people see that Jesus refused to show any reason or evidence. You just have to believe what he says. Uh, But that's not the case here. If you look at the context of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had already performed several signs prior to this. I mean, in chapter four, in chapter eight, in chapter nine, he had performed several miracles already. And in fact, when this confrontation occurs, it occurs soon after Jesus heals a man with a withered hand in chapter 12, verse nine through 13 and then delivers a demon-possessed man right after. And so he had already done several miracles, and in light of this, these Jewish leaders come to him and say, we demand to see a sign from you. And so the biblical principle here is that signs are not performed on demand for those who have shown already a hardness of heart. Jesus had already done several miracles, but the hardness of these men's heart was revealed in the question that they asked. You know, those whose hearts are hardened to God's revelation given to them will not believe, even if they witness a miracle. Jesus already presented a host of evidences, and to those who have an open heart, there will be a confirmation of their seeking the truth that they're looking for. But those with hardness of heart, you know, Jesus won't perform, won't comply to their request for another miracle when he's done several already.
0: Pat, I guess I should have read the next verse, verse 40, because it says, What I am going to give you, however, is the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And he's talking about the resurrection. And the resurrection is one of the greatest apologetics tools in God's kingdom.
1: Right. So in this story, Jesus is not rebuking them for their request for evidence. He is rather rebuking the hardness of their heart that has been
0: displayed. Let me give you another objection. It's in Luke 16, and uh, most of our listeners will be familiar with the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man went into Hades, and the poor man, Lazarus, went uh, to paradise. And down toward the end of the chapter, the rich man said, I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers, and warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham said the rich man, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But then he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So this seems to be an objection against using apologetics.
1: Yes, once again, it's the same principle that was applied in the previous story. Jesus is not rebuking them for their request for evidence, but rebuking people for the hardness of their heart for those whose hearts are hardened even a miracle will not convince them of the truth of the gospel
0: even if someone rises from the dead exactly believe him. That was exa- kind of prophetic there <laughs>
1: right and in luke 16 we see the hardness of of the heart of this rich man it says he lived in extravagance dressing in fine linen and purple and he saw poor lazarus daily says begging at his gate that lazarus ate what fell from the rich man's table. This man was well aware of the need of Lazarus. He saw Lazarus daily and his hardness of heart is revealed in that he ignores the need of Lazarus, which is right there in front of him. And the Old Testament law clearly teaches to care for the needs of the poor. You know, Deuteronomy 15, Isaiah 25. But this man willingly ignored God's law and the need of a man who was right there. In fact, lived in extravagance despite the fact that there was a need he could have easily met right there. And once again, remember, miracles confirm the faith of those with open hearts, seeking the truth, seeking God, and those with hardened hearts will not respond. And both stories teach a valuable lesson, you know, that in sharing Christ, an apologist or any Christian needs to know when to end a conversation. If you're talking to someone who's open to truth, answer his questions. But if you're talking to someone with a hardness of heart, He's just going to keep bringing up question after question after question. And after you answer that question, he's just going to bring up more questions, looking for a way to justify his unbelief. And the apologist or the Christian needs to know, like Christ, when is it time to say, this is the end? You know, no more signs for you. I'm not wasting any more time for you. because No soup for you. Really, you're not looking for an answer. You're looking for a way to justify your unbelief. You know, I remember there was an example of a man who was dating a Christian girl, and she brought her boyfriend to a conference and he just kept asking me questions about the flood and i showed him how it's a plausible scenario uh, to get the animals upon the ark how it's plausible you can have two stories filled with animals and one story for noah and his family how they could survive but then he started talking about the molecules in the water and the temperature in the water and the algae and wanted me to answer all these questions well he wasn't looking for answers he was just looking to drag this thing on and on to justify his unbelief it's at that point That I needed as a wise Christian or an apologist to be able to say, look, you're not asking me honest questions. You're just looking for reasons to justify your unbelief and and to bring it to an end there and move on to people who are more open to the truth. So even Jesus, God incarnate himself, saw there was a time when we need to bring conversations to an end for those with hardened hearts.
0: Pat, this next one out of John 20 is probably the one that I've heard most often. This has been thrown at me as a person involved in apologetics more times than I can count, literally. And it's in John 20. It's the story of Thomas. Doubting Thomas is what it's traditionally called. But one of the 12, Thomas, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Verse 25, so the other disciples kept telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. After eight days, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but be a believer. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. In other words, it seems to say, Jesus is saying, Look, you don't even have to have any evidence, you know, just believe. Blessed are those who believe without evidence?
1: Yeah, you know, many view Jesus' response to Thomas here as a rebuke, as he's scolding Thomas. But he's not. This is not a rebuke, but an acknowledgement of Thomas' declaration of faith when Thomas declared to Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. And then Jesus concludes with a blessing on future generations who will believe in him without the physical evidence the apostles have had but on the testimony of the apostles. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is not rebuking Thomas. He is acknowledging Thomas's declaration of faith. And the second part, blessed are they who do not see and yet believe is a future blessing on the future generations to come who will not have this kind of physical evidence, but will believe on the testimony of these apostles. You know, and many of us are blessed because of that passage and because of the request of Thomas that he made. So actually, you know what Thomas did it turns out to be a blessing for us all.
0: All right, Pat, I think you took care of that one. Now, here's another one. I think this is number two on the charts. This is probably coming in second as to what I hear as an objection to using apologetics. And it's first Corinthians two fourteen. And it says, But the natural man does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit. The King James Version says, the natural man does not receive what comes from. spirit because it is foolishness to him he is not able to know it since it is evaluated spiritually so it's saying if a man is natural he's not going to receive the things of god anyway
1: well many people interpret that and say well because of our fallenness in sin it has so corrupted the mind it is unable to understand spiritual truth and it cannot receive it well the word "accept" here in this passage in the greek is dekomai which means to welcome or receive favorably so people without the Spirit do not welcome the spiritual truths of God. So it's not that they are not capable of understanding the truth. They do not welcome it because it contradicts their values. Romans 1.20 you know, makes it clear that unbelievers understand God's truth. It says, Paul says in chapter 1, that they are without excuse. So the natural man does not welcome or willingly receive the truths of God's Word. And the word understand there, the Greek word is ginosko refers to full knowledge gained through experience. And unbelievers do not have this kind of understanding, for this kind of understanding comes from acting and obeying the Word of God. So it's not that they do not, they are not able to understand spiritual truths. They are not able to reason and discover truth and look at the evidence. It's that they do not welcome the Word of God. They do not receive it favorably because of their value system and they're in rebellion to God. But it's not that they do not understand the reason or the evidence or they're unable to comprehend spiritual truth.
0: It's like if someone won't welcome you into their home, you cannot come into my home. They will not decomai you and will not receive your welcoming.
1: Right, so the problem is not the reasoning capabilities, the problem is the heart.
0: A lot of people go earlier in the chapter. I hear this sometimes, Pat, and they'll say, Paul told the Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in other words, hes I've heard a lot of people say, Paul is repenting of all he did there in Acts 17, all the philosophy and intellectual discourse that he did in Acts 17. And he's coming to Corinthians and saying, I'm putting all that aside, and I'm just going to preach Christ and him crucified.
1: Yeah, and once again, that's a misunderstanding of the text. If you read Acts seventeen, Paul was successful. It says there that Dionysius, one of the top leaders of the Areopagus, became a believer.
0: Yeah, he had converts.
1: Exactly. And some
0: he planted seeds too, because some right. said, "Hey, you know what? We want to hear more on this." Yeah. So it wasn't unsuccessful at all.
1: Right, and according to the church tradition, this man Dionysius becomes the first bishop from that area so paul was very successful and so what paul is saying here is that i don't focus on the philosophies of men the focus of my preaching is the gospel of jesus christ but that doesn't mean paul doesn't use reason and evidence in his presentation of the gospel yeah
0: he was talking to some very carnal corinthians too right they really did need milk not meat. right
1: and look at first corinthians fifteen that is an apologetic presentation of the gospel Paul mentions that Christ died and rose again, and he presents the testimony of witnesses. Acts 26, when he is before uh, Festus, that is an apologetic presentation right there. He's quoting scripture, and he says that these evidences did not happen in a corner. He says, you're well aware of them. He's pointing to evidences. And so it's not that Paul didn't use reason or evidence. He certainly did. Paul just said that the focus of his message is on the gospel, not on philosophies of men.
0: Pat's new book is The Apologetics of Jesus, co written with Dr. Norman Geisler. It's from Baker Brooks and available at evidenceandanswers.org. Well, after this study on the apologetic methods of Jesus, let's wrap up today, Pat. What kind of apologetics did Jesus practice? Why don't you just synopsize for us?
1: Yes, well, Jesus doesn't lay out a particular method or school of apologetics he follows, but we do know that Jesus believed these things, that he used reason and evidence in his defense of his claims. Uh, He believed in the use of testimony, of miracles, of prophecy and his resurrection. Uh, Jesus, we built a pretty good case that in a non-theistic culture, Jesus would have used theistic arguments for God. And so I conclude that Jesus was not a fideist. In other words, he did not expect people to believe by faith without reason or evidence. I don't think he was a pure evidentialist because it wasn't merely the evidence that uh, he presented, having the right worldview was important to Jesus, and uh, you look at Paul's presentation in Acts 17, he demonstrated this. In a non-theistic culture, you need to have the right worldview. I don't believe he was a presuppositionalist. He did not believe that unbelievers were so blinded by sin they could not understand spiritual truth. He used reason and rebuked those who failed to use sound reason. He did not say, here my presuppositions or hear my beliefs, accept them, and then you can understand my message. He used reason and evidence against the skeptics. I believe Jesus would be what we would call a classical apologist. And in classical apologetics, you start where the person is with their worldview. You establish the theistic worldview that a God exists. God exists, miracles are possible, and God uses miracles to confirm his message and his messenger, and then you present the evidences through sound reasoned arguments and the evidence to present your case for the gospel of jesus christ so i believe jesus falls most closely with what we would call classical apologetics
0: good job on this book Matt, and we hope it just flies off the shelves It's available now. Get it before it does fly off the shelves at evidenceandanswers.org. By the way, if you want to keep a quality apologetics program on the air and on the web, please support Evidence and Answers with your prayers and financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing the many resources we have online, including Pat's new book with Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. So check out our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you can also invite Pat to speak at your next event, church, campus, or conference on the most crucial issues facing the world today and how the Christian worldview provides the best answers to the best questions. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure and join us.